Joshua, when he went into the promised land, they came to a place called Jericho. God gave them specific instructions as to how to defeat the city, and which they did. But one of the instructions was, once the city had been defeated, was to not take any possession from the city. But there was a guy called Aachen, Aachen, who went in and stole some of the wealthy valuables and hid it in his tent. And so they went on to the next place called Ai, Ai. And this little city that was just really half the size of Jericho defeated the Israelites. And it shocked them. Absolutely shocked them. Because there was no unity that was taking place. You see, if we are going to take the city, if we're going to take the next hill, if we're going to get to the next milestone, we, we have to be in unity with one another. So my question is, are you, are you with us? Are you going to be with us? Are we going to, are we going to link arms together? Are we going to be, be together in this situation as we plant more churches, as we grow? So I want to preach this morning on Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 is a great, great chapter on church health. And there have been many, many volumes of things printed on church health. But this particular book in the book of Romans deals with church health. Uh, in the first verse we see we have to be a living sacrifice because that is, is the, the true and acceptable worship to God. Uh, and then it goes on to verse 2, discovering what the uh, good, acceptable, perfect will of God is uh, and for our minds to be transformed. Um, and then it goes on in verse 3 to verse 8, talking about the gifts, the motivational gifts, and how we are to discover our gifts and to be of service in the kingdom of God. And then from verse 9 onwards to the end, it talks about how we are to be in love, gracious, kind love with one another. Uh, how do we relate to one another? And so it's a fantastic chapter of good church health. And so this morning I want to speak about uh, the first verse. So let's look at Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Wow, that is a serious, serious verse. You all know the story of the chicken and the pig. The chicken and the pig had a conversation on farmyard one day and they said, you know, Farmer Brown has been so good to us and we should really bless him tomorrow morning and we give him a breakfast that he really enjoys and let's give him bacon and eggs. And the pig thought about that for a while and thought, mm. for you, Mr. Chicken, it's a contribution, but for me it's total sacrifice. <laughs> oh, Mrs. Chicken. <laughs> Mrs. Chicken. Yeah. Sorry. I, 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 went, to, I went to university uh, to do theology, not biology. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So that's the difference between a contribution and the sacrifice. You know, I mean, I'm not talking like like the Roman Catholics gave up meat on Fridays. Uh, I'm not saying we should give up watching certain things of television. I'm not saying we should not go to the mall on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, you know, it's living sacrifice. Living sacrifice means this one thing I do is the most important thing in my life, and that is my relationship with God and His kingdom. My whole life. Is centered on that and everything else is peripheral all around it. I will do everything that I can to honor him. Now you must know that sacrifice in the ancient times was, was universal. People gave sacrifices in order to try and get their deity to pay attention so that the deity could respond in some way. It was an exchange for some divine power. So if you sacrifice something, you get some divine power back. The Greek king, Emma Memnon, was unable to move his ships because of an unfavorable wind. He was unable to move his ships out of the harbor and go to war. So he sacrificed his daughter to the gods in exchange for a change of weather. Even in the Bible, we see in um, Judges chapter 11, there was a guy, Jephthah who was asked to be the leader, the commander of the Israelites against the Amorites. And so he, he did that. He was eventually you know, persuaded to go to war, and he did that. And he said, if I win this battle, when I return home, the first person that walks out of our house, my house, is going to be sacrificed. And let's look. In Judges chapter 11 and verse 31, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Amorites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. His only young daughter was the first to walk out. Stupid. But that was his promise. And it's in the Bible. We see stories of sacrifice from Abraham and Isaac all the way through to Jesus. And against this background, Paul writes to the Romans and he says, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable worship to God. Now, Paul believed that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was the only acceptable sacrifice. All other sacrifices of people bringing animals to the altar and sacrificing them because of their sins had passed away. Jesus had done that. But now Paul says, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your entire life, your body, your daily existence should be a gift that you present to God in gratitude of all that he has done for you. Let's look at that passage again, Romans 12 and 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, it says bodies. Now, for the Greeks, in Greek mythology, they had two different things. The spirit was one thing and the body was another thing. But within the Jewish theology, body, mind, and spirit were a, a unity. 
What affected the body affected the mind, affected the spirit. What affected the spirit affected the mind, affected the body. But with the Greeks, they thought they could do whatever they wanted to do with their bodies and really grow their spirits. But that's totally incorrect. So Paul here says to this Gentile church, the Romans, that were once Gentiles, now they're Christians, he says to them, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In the Bible, we see the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the instrument of the Holy Spirit through which the Holy Spirit works. Jesus himself took on the incarnation. He took on a human body to be with us. He didn't hesitate to do that. To be with us, to walk with us, to set an example, to experience all the temptations that we experience in, in, our, in our daily lives. And Paul says, you take your body, you take your tasks, your daily obligations, all the things that you do at work, your office, your factory, your shop, wherever you are, and offer it up as worship to God. The word in Greek that Paul uses for worship is latria, which means the whole person. Everything that you do. We talk on a Sunday morning. Sweetie, wake up. Let's go to church to worship God. But worship is much more than just Sunday morning. Or we're going to have a worship session at community on a Wednesday night. It's much more than Sunday morning and a Wednesday night. It's your whole life. Whatever you do is of worship to God. Go to work. Your conduct, your attitude, the way you speak about God, the way you speak to others, it's worship as well. Your whole life needs to be centered on the relationship of God. That is worship. Put your bodies at God's disposal and as a thank offering to Him. Charles Stanley, in his book, Confronting Casual Christianity, talks about two different things. He talks about Christians making a decision, and he talks about Christians who are committed. And he talks about marriage. Marriages are in turmoil worldwide. There's almost as many divorces as there are marriages. But that he goes on and he says, people, when they get married, make a decision. They make a decision that they're going to marry this person, this woman. They walk down the aisle together. They, in front of the minister, say their vows together. They exchange rings and they kiss and they've made a decision. But some of them have not made the commitment. Through health and through sickness... And it's the commitment that really changes everything. It's like, uh, we've done a lot of traveling on airplanes lately. It's like when an airplane is going down, you know, it starts off, it goes down the lanes and eventually, right, you're the next to take off. We're sitting there waiting. And then the engines fire up. And off you go. Somewhere along the way, the pilot has to say, well, I commit myself to the air. I've got enough speed. Here comes the forest. 
at the end of the runway, <laughs> if I don't commit to the air, we're all going to die. The flight coming back from Amsterdam to Cape Town, 408 people as a big airplane. And that's not the biggest. But you're going to, they have to commit and they have to take off. And there's a big difference between making a decision and committing. Some of you will make a decision this morning. Yes, I'm going to give my body as a living sacrifice for God. But you will only step in to the commitment as you walk out of the door. That's the difference. That's the difference. You see, George Barner, the great sociologist, said there are many people who have fallen in love with the faith rather than the object of the faith. And he says this, it's much less demanding to be devoted to the idea of faith than to invest yourself in true relationship with the living God. And if we're going to get into the commitment point of this, the stage, we have to be committed to the object of our faith rather than to the idea of the situation. In the Second World War, towards the end of the war, Japan declared war on the United States. They woke up a sleeping giant. But initially they attacked Pearl Harbor. And the way in which they fought was that they had kamikaze pilots in the Pacific Ocean. Kamikaze pilot was a guy who was, and he, he had bombs attached to his airplane and he was going to drive, fly straight into an aircraft carrier. And some of them hit the aircraft carrier. They were, the intention was for the American troops to try and shoot the thing down before they hit the, 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 the boat, the ship. But you know, there's no such thing as a kamikaze pilot who has had 10 missions. You just have one. You just have one. And the authors of the Bible were more concerned about People who worshipped God with their lips and their hearts were totally distant. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 29. But Jesus quotes Isaiah 29 in Matthew 15 and verse 8. And this is what he says. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Decision, but no commitment. So Paul says, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, don't you find that word living sacrifice strange? Those words, strange? Living sacrifice? It's what we say in English as an oxymoron. An oxymoron. Okay, let me give you a couple of examples of oxymoron. That girl over there, she's, she's pretty ugly. Pretty ugly. I mean, what is what is that? The 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 guy at the nightclub, the bouncer at the nightclub, gave the guy a headbutt. What is what is that? I mean, is there something wrong with that? I, I had a jumbo shrimp for lunch. <laughs> the chocolate was bitter sweet. 
I'm so grateful that we are alone together. That was awfully delicious. There was a deafening silence. I want a definite maybe from you. <laughs> I want an exact estimate. I don't think was. I want an exact estimate. Huh? <laughs> Your only choice. <laughs> Your only choice. Huh? And so, Paul says, you're a living sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, if you're living, you're alive. You are displaying the vital signs of life, but a sacrifice is, and by the nature of it, it's either dead or it's about to die. It's tough. There was a day that God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, Yes, Lord. Here am I. I wonder how many times God comes to us and our response was, not now. But Abraham says, here am I. And God speaks to him and says, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. That's cool. Take your son, go to the land of Moriah. And there on the mountain that I will show you, it's also cool. There's a mountain there. And God will show us the mountain. Offer your son as a sacrifice to me. Wow. You see his will come crashing in at that point. The Bible doesn't, in the book of Genesis, doesn't record his emotions. But I think that Abraham must have fallen on his knees and cried out to God. No, God. No. Take Ishmael, but don't take Isaac. You yourself have promised Sarah will bear a son and you will name him Isaac. You have promised that we will keep his covenant, you will keep his covenant with him and with his descendants forever, and it will be an everlasting covenant. But God demanded a sacrifice, and only Abraham could do that. And there was a point where Abraham said, okay, I'm going to do it. And he took Isaac and he tied him up and he was about to plunge the dagger into his, because I think Abraham, who was known for his faith, probably thought God will provide in this situation. God will provide. He is Jehovah Jireh. Even if I kill my son, God will bring him back and resurrect him. Because you've got a promise. You've made a promise, Lord, that there will be an everlasting covenant through this child. But Abraham had to do that himself. And it wasn't easy. Jesus didn't find it easy. You know, there was a time when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if we went into the Garden of Gethsemane and we walked past the sleeping disciples and we saw Jesus crumpled up, knelt, crying out, this was, this was Jesus who was in command of every situation. This was Jesus who commanded the wind and the waves to be still. This was Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, who commanded people to be healed. He was in command of every situation. And now we see Jesus lying crumpled on the ground, crying out, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. 
And it wasn't God's will. And Jesus died. But the result of that was that we came to experience salvation and redemption for the entire world. But Jesus had to take that on himself. It's not easy. It's not easy. Abraham had to sacrifice Joseph himself. Jesus had to give his life himself. The Bible tells us in John 12 and verse 24. John 12, 24. Sorry. Let me just read it. Oh, there we go. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls onto the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you want to abide alone? Then keep yourself back. Hold yourself. But once you do it, once you give of yourself, it bears much fruit. Alan Bond, I don't know who he is, some preacher, no relation to James Bond. Alan Bond said, the bigger I grow in God, the smaller I become. The bigger I grow in God, the smaller I become. Uh, there'll be moments when you experience God. He'll come and He'll test you. I want to say to you, remain humble. Just remain humble. In First Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you in due time. And at the proper time, he may exalt you. Humble yourselves. Do you see what that says? Before you even look at God exalting you in the proper time, it says humble yourselves. If you don't want to humble yourselves, don't get to that place where you have to allow God to do that. Because that's not going to be pretty. The Bible says humble yourselves. You keep yourselves humble. If God says Come, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. God, I come in humility and I do it. Humility in uh, the words of Andrew Murray says this. Humility is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing that is done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. And when I am blamed or despised, the humble person is not one who thinks meanly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. It was a, a time when I just joined Josh Jen. You know, granted, I'd been in ministry for 26 years. And I just joined Josh Jen. I brought in an entire congregation of 100 people from, from Grace Family Church and uh, handed over 100,000 uh, ran to Josh Jen Coffers, I mean, almost nine years ago. That was you know, a nice chunk of money. And uh, we, we joined Joshua Generation Church. And I preached a couple of times, and uh, the guys were very, very warm and encouraging. I said, gee, you preach good, man. You know, and I thought, great. It was my turn to preach on Sunday. And I'd spent the week preparing and on the Friday morning, the guy who was leading the congregation phoned me and said, I, I, actually, I'm going to bump you out. 
I'm not going to let you preach this week because I've got some other guy to come in. I said, who have you got to come in to take my place? So he said, no, no, he told me the person's like, oh, it's like a double timer. It's like a guy who's not even been in ministry. He's coming and taking my place. You know, I was chipped, eh? I was so incensed. <laughs> and I made it known. How arrogant. So ugly. So anyway, one of the other guys came to see me, speak to me. He saw the thunder in my face. You know, I'd just been bumped. When am I going to preach again? Next week? No, no, no. There's somebody else next week. Maybe sometime next month. <laughs> I mean, I'm so embarrassed now to tell you a story, but I mean, it, it, it's for a reason. So, so the guy came and he said, Rich, the logo for Josh Jen is dying to live. Dying. You get a corpse and you kick a corpse. Corpse doesn't move. Doesn't become like a zombie, like the movies. Like, I'm, I'm alive now. I'm coming after you. It's dead. You can do anything with that corpse. It's dead. And we ought to be like that as well. Dead. And he said to me also, he says, there's no iron team. Let me tell you, that made such an impression on me. We're in a team. There's no room for I, me, myself in this team. And I really had to come before God and say, God, help me to be humble. Really. You know, when David was commissioned by God and by Saul, King Saul, to go and kill that giant on the other side of the valley, David had to go out and find five little smooth stones. And as he was going out, I would imagine those rocks in the pathway down to the river cried out, David, pick me up, use me. And David said, no, no, you're too big to use. Maybe sometimes God has to put us aside because we're too big and use somebody a lot smaller in order to accomplish his plan and his purpose. God of grace and the God of the Most High will never come to a self-righteous, arrogant heart. He will always come to those that have humility upon them because they have come to that point where they have said, I need to humble myself. There's one incident that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's when Mary comes and he breaks open the vase of Jesus and pours ointment on, onto Jesus. It's recorded in all four Gospels. Not every incident in the Bible or in the Gospels is recorded in all four. But this is recorded. What Mary did was that she broke open, poured out the ointment, spent it, wasted it on Jesus. She could have kept it. She could have preserved it. But that incredible remembrance, that act of love, extravagant love towards Jesus was remembered and has been remembered for 2,000 years. But she wasted it. She gave of it. And we need to give of ourselves a little bit more. We need to empty ourselves in loving service to our God. And I think the world will be blessed by us giving and wasting of ourselves 
Mark chapter 8 and verse 35 says this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Thomas Huxley said about discipleship, it doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian, but it takes all there is of him. I had an opportunity to travel to Israel in 1982. And four years later, I went with a team of pastors on a promotional tour back to Israel in 1986. Became very friendly with a Pentecostal minister from a place called Chatsworth, just outside Durban. He was a colored man. Wonderful. We spent a lot of time on the bus talking and sharing. He says, I can't wait to go to the upper room in Jerusalem. He was a Pentecostal minister. He couldn't wait for that experience of going into the upper room where possibly the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. He couldn't wait for that. But you know, that was only at the end of the week. Two days before, we went into what was, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And there is a chapel in the Garden of Gethsemane, and in the middle of the chapel, there is a rock, a nice big chunk of rock, probably the rock on which Jesus knelt when he cried out, Father, Father, let this cup pass from me. And the guide was talking, and I looked over, and I looked at Alan, and he was weeping. And I went to him, and I said, what's going on? This is not, this is not the upper room. This is not Pentecost. Why are you weeping now? He says, God is speaking to me so much. You see, before blessing, there is sacrifice. Before Pentecost, comes the cross. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A woman asked a Scottish preacher, what does this mean? What does that phrase mean? He took a page, a blank page, put it in front of her and said, Sign your name at the bottom of the page and let God fill it in as he wills. That's what being a living sacrifice is. Now, I've been very, very impacted by the little video clip of David Livingston. Some of you have seen it, some of you not. And we're going to watch it now. This was a man who knew what it was to be a living sacrifice for God. We're going to watch it right now. David Livingston. David Livingston was born in Blantyre, Scotland in 1813. He was born into a home where his father used to put him on his knee and read to him stories of great missionary exploits, one particularly Carl Gutzlaff, the Dutch missionary, who doubled up as a medical missionary too. And young David used to look into his father's eyes and say, you know, Daddy, one day I'm going to be a man like that. I want to be a missionary. I want to be a doctor. I want to serve God. 
So David Livingston in his young life got on his knees one day and he prayed this prayer. He said, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties but the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. And he said, through it all, the words of God came to me. Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. He packed his bags and he went off to Africa. And when he took one glimpse of Africa from a distance, he penned in his journal these words, The haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun has burned within my heart. The haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun has burned within my heart. He married a woman of the famous Moffat family. Mary was her name. Her father had been a great missionary. But David Livingston's life was one of an ex explorer and he would move from place to place and his only goal was Jesus in the hearts and lives of men and women, thousands of them. Finally, his wife and his young family couldn't keep up with him anymore. Some of his children were dying out of sickness and disease. And he said, Mary, why don't you take them back home and I will see you shortly and spend some more time with you. It's too dangerous for us to go on. So he sent his dear wife Mary back home and letters would take months to exchange. But some of the fondest letters of love and romance were exchanged between David and Mary. And you know when he saw her the next time? Not five weeks not five months, five years. As an evangelist, I can't even stay away five weeks now. As a matter of fact, it's been a long time since I've stayed away that long and I don't intend doing it anymore. Five days is long enough. Five months I would never dream of and never want to do. Five years. I am neither condemning the man nor exalting the man. I'm just telling you what went on in his life. Five years later when he set eyes upon his wife, she could not recognize him. Because at one stage in his jungle travels, going to preach, he'd walked into the branch of a tree that had completely blinded him in one eye and marred the other. His face had been burnt under the African sun to a crisp and leather, and his body not being pigment, skin not being pigmented for it, it had roasted him to a point that his body really could not take any longer. His face marred and scarred, his eye blinded. At one time he'd been attacked by a lion that had torn one of his shoulders apart. He miraculously escaped. And now she saw her husband hobbling in with a marred face and a disfigured physical countenance. And yet, hours before he arrived, they had buried his father. And David wept because he'd longed to look at his dad and tell him stories firsthand that his father had only told him thirdhand. Biographical sketches tell us that when David Livingston walked into every university in the British Isles, students and faculties would rise to a standing ovation. They knew they were standing in the presence of a giant of a man. Finally, he went back to his wife one day and he said, Honey, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun is still burning within my heart. We need to go back. And at one point she decided that he should go, but she couldn't. She had to be with the children. She said, when they're all old enough, I will join you again, David. And he set off on his lonely journey to preach to the African people who were so much within his heart. Finally, after a long time, Mary joined him. And the day she set foot on African soil, she contracted the disease that they so dreaded she would contract. The very day she set foot, she got that disease. And a few days later, he was burying her. Lowered into the soil of the African earth there. An eyewitness said David Livingston knelt beside the grave and he was weeping his heart out and they overheard him praying. My Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I again consecrate my life to thee. 
I shall place no value in anything I possess or in anything I may do except in relation to thy kingdom and to thy service. And through it all there came the words of God to my heart, he said, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. He picked up his belongings and walked back towards his village, hometown village of Ujiji. When he arrived and went into his little home there, he found out somebody had played a cruel joke on him and stolen his medication that he so needed because his body was racked with pain, untold pain. He walked in constant agony. And they said in one of the very few times in his life for praying for himself, he got down on his knees and wept and he said, God, you promised that you would always be with me. I need that medication if I'm to continue to preach the gospel. And as he prayed, he heard steps. And as the story goes, he saw a pair of feet planted in front of him and his countenance lifted for the first time in a long while. He was looking in the face of a white man who didn't live in Africa. And he said, who are you, sir? And he says, Mr. Livingston, I presume. You get that famous line from there. He looks at him and says, Mr. Livingston, I presume. He says, yes, sir. He says, Mr. Livingston, I'm a press reporter consigned to do your, a story on your life. I want you to know two things about me. Number one, I'm the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth. Please don't try to convert me. Number two, somebody has sent some medication for me for you. He says, give me the medication, please. And Mr. Henry M. Stanley started to travel with David Livingston. Four months later, the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth knelt down on African soil and gave his life to Jesus Christ. One of the best biographies you'll ever read, two volumes entitled Livingston of Africa by Henry M. Stanley. He said, the power of that Christ life was awesome and I had to buckle in. I couldn't hold out any longer. Finally, as his body began to shrivel with high temperatures and pain, they used to carry him around from village to village on a stretcher. One day, preaching from a stretcher with his heart, body literally trembling, he finally looked at two of his national brothers and says, Please take me back home. I am very, very ill. I'm very tired. I need some sleep. They brought him back to his little home and were about to spill him over onto the bed when he says, No, please help me onto my knees. And Livingston buckled down on his knees by the side of his bed and clasped his hands and started to pray. His prayers were so profound, his sanctuary was so unique that the African brothers felt there was no, it would be blasphemy to stay in this single union, communion with God. And they stepped out of his little room. And then somebody came running and said, I need to see Mr. Livingston for a moment. They said, shh, quiet please, he's praying. Five minutes went by, they looked in, he was still on his knees. Several minutes went by, looked in, still he was on his knees. A protracted period of time went by, they turned in, he was still on his knees. Till one of them felt the man was just too tired to continue to pray. He needed to get some sleep. They walked over towards him and one of them shook him by the shoulders and said, Buana, Buana. And Livingston fell over. He was dead. He died exactly the way he had lived. In the presence of his Lord. He didn't run from his voice. He didn't wave a lamp that had no light in it. He didn't sell his soul for some earthly pleasure. But the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages had burned itself within his heart till he could say, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all. David Livingston Good, eh? I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to say it by myself. And then I'm going to ask you if you would like to stand and say it after me. I'm going to repeat it. Uh, so let's, let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I belong to you from the top of my head to the end of my toes. I will always be yours. You have saved me. You have redeemed me. You are the king of my life and have absolute and undivided rule in my life. Over my affections and will and desires. Lord, my chief aim in life is that I shall please you. So change me and cleanse me and use me as you will. I ask you to help me to loyally keep this prayer because I am willing to lay down my life for your sake if you should ask me. If you have been convicted this morning by this verse, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And to see the giant of the man like David Livingston have such an incredible impact. I want to say to you today, if you want to stand and repeat this prayer with me again, I want you to stand and say, Today, Lord, I present my body as a living sacrifice. I'm going to say it slowly and just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I belong to you from head to foot. I will always be yours. For you have redeemed me and saved me. You are the king of my life. You have absolute and undivided rule over all my affections and will and desires. Lord, my chief aim in life shall be to please you. So change me and cleanse me and use me as you will. I ask you to help me to loyally keep this prayer because I am willing to lay down my life for your sake. If you should ask me. Thank you, Lord. Let's just remain in an attitude of prayer. We've made a decision today, Lord. But it's only as we walk out of this place today that commitment begins to take place. And I pray, Lord, that whatever happens this week, we would be living sacrifices for you, ready to represent you, ready to speak your truth, to speak your love. Help us this week, Lord, in all that we do, to honor you, for this is our true and acceptable worship. We bless you, Lord, for your goodness, for what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's remain standing as the worship team just comes forward and closes off with the last song.